continue our series from the book of Daniel. And uh, we're coming to the second half of the fourth chapter. Last Sunday I closed with a challenge for us to seek understanding, to understand the importance of living a life of humility and self-examination. And I shared a few verses with you regarding the importance of learning how to live in that posture of humility. We heard first from James 4, 6, and 10. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. And then, quoting the same verse, Peter would write, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then finally, we heard the warning that Paul gives that comes from 1 Corinthians 10-12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. But true humility... True humility will also encourage us to live a life of openness to God's examination. It's the realization that we are not who we should be. Ever. We cannot, and I don't know how to stress this any more than the way I have repeatedly stressed it. We cannot think that we have reached a point where we're okay. We're never there. And like I've said many times, just like my plants, if my plants aren't growing, I realize something's wrong. There should be a daily process of growth. And we looked at a couple of verses from Psalms 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. How comfortable are you praying that line? Even though we know that God knows our every thought. But then he continues and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, don't just help me, Father, know what I'm doing wrong. Help me understand how I can correct and improve. And again, Psalm 26, not just search me, but prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart in my mind. So here's the question that I want to ask you this morning. Are you listening? Are you open to how God might be trying to get your attention? Chapter 32 of Job begins with a statement that insinuates that the debate is over. Frustrated by what they believe to be Job's self-righteous attitude, the three friends give up in their attempt to answer Job. And when the author adds that the friends had found no way to refute Job and that they had nothing more to say, this is his way of telling us that Job has won the debate. And yet, another defender comes in there and takes the stage. His name is Elihu, which means he is my God. Elihu is introduced by a rather lengthy pedigree. He is the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram. Now, 
I know, when you're reading, sometimes those genealogies get you drawn down a little bit. But this genealogical note is important because not only is Elihu the only character in the book of Job with an Israelite name, but his ancestry also makes him a relative of Abraham. And Elihu has waited patiently, probably because he appears to be the youngest. He's done that out of reverence. But with verse 13, he begins his rebuttal of one of Job's charges against God. That God doesn't answer. That God is unresponsive. And so, to the contrary, Elihu insists that God does speak in a variety of ways. Listen to what Elihu says. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. God does speak to us. First, and foremost by His Word. We have to start there. And then if we have a dream, we've got to check that dream by His Word. If we get counsel from a friend or a group of friends, we need to listen. And then we need to check that counsel by His Word. Because this is the the main source that we have for knowing what it is that God wants to, to know about Himself and about His plans for us and what we're to do. But He does speak to us by dreams, by visions, by suffering. More recently than in the past, I have heard people share with me, you know, I didn't know why I had to deal with that. But now looking back, I realize that God was trying to waken me up to something. Suffering. And by the mediating word of the Holy Spirit. You have, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you to guide you. And one of the ways the Holy Spirit will guide you if you allow it to happen is by His Word. Some of you probably will admit the same thing I will. There have been times that I was caught, couldn't understand what I needed to do. I just have randomly picked up my Bible and started reading a passage. And it was a passage that spoke to the concern that I had at that time. I've shared with you what Jesse and I do. Each year now, for four years, we've started at the beginning of the year, and together the two of us have read through the Bible. Together, as a couple. Sometimes we have to get caught up. There have been times that when we were on the road, like probably this afternoon, when we're on the road, we'll finish two days that we didn't get finished this week by listening to it over the car instead of some music or something, listening to God's Word. 
But as we do that, there has never been a time that I haven't stopped the, the tape and said, Jesse, did you hear that? Because a lot of times it has to do with something we've been talking about, discussing. God's timing is impeccable. And in these verses, Elihu is pointing out that what you and I might label as wrestling with a guilty conscience, this very well might be God's specific attempts to keep us from the self-destructive ends of our pride and of our sinful behavior. Job's friends had argued that his suffering was evidence that God was punishing him for his sins. But Elihu now argues that sometimes God permits us to suffer to keep us from sinning. In other words, suffering may be preventive and not just punitive. To keep us from the destructive ends of our pride because pride comes before the fall. One of my favorite authors is a guy who used to be an atheist. Now he's a Christian, or now he's dead, but he became a Christian. In fact, how many of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings series of books by J.R. Tolkien? The guy that I'm going to refer to was converted by... Tolkien and a couple others inviting him into a group at Oxford and he joined them and through discussion he, though he at that time was a professor of literature at Oxford, decided to accept and learn more about the God they were talking about. His name is C.S. Lewis. He's written a book that's titled Mere Christianity and he calls pride the great sin. He writes, there is one vice of which no person in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in others, and of which hardly any people except some Christians ever imagine that they're guilty of themselves. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice is called pride, the great sin. Because of the enmity it created not only between man and man, but also between man and God. Now I shared how in the first half of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was double-minded. Now, in the last half of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar seems to have a sense of urgency and passion to get a message out to those whose hearts are so filled with pride and whose lives are so filled with prosperity that they have no room for the living and true God. And the lesson he learned is actually recorded in the last sentence of his testimony. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Daniel chapter 4 verse 37. And though the lesson Nebuchadnezzar learned came up, up from the worst experience of his life, I think he would tell you that it was probably the best thing that ever happened to him. And as we transition to the last half of the chapter, the fourth chapter, we realize that there are two men who are both deeply alarmed by the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. 
Nebuchadnezzar because he claims he doesn't understand the dream, what the dream means. And Daniel because he knows what the dream means but is dismayed and alarmed about the prospect of sharing the meaning with the king. And so in our text, as our text begins, there is a word of assurance. Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to start actually with verse 18. Or excuse me, 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. You hear what he's saying? This is a bad dream, king. I wish I could tell you that it wasn't aimed at you, but it was aimed at your enemies. And then he goes on and proceeds to give the interpretation of the dream. He says, The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in their branches for the birds of the air. You... O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that they shall drive you from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall wet, you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility." God used Daniel to provide the interpretation of the dream. He used Daniel to be that light in the darkness. For he revealed to him the meaning of the dream, but the revelation dismayed and alarmed Daniel. That must have been the longest period of waiting in the king's history. It was plain to Daniel that the message of the dream was a sobering one. 
He didn't take it lightly or deliver it in a careless fashion to the king. And by the way, as a true prophet, a true spokesman for God, that kind of a person is always in sympathy with the message. They feel the burden of it and deliver God's word faithfully. We are called to speak the truth. But you know what? There are a lot of good people who have been hurt by the truth that Christians spoke because they failed the next line of that verse. We're to speak the truth in love. You see, that's not condemning. That's not condoning either. But it's confronting by means of the word in a loving way. And the the explanation of the dream really wasn't difficult to grasp. That's why Nebuchadnezzar's own seers didn't want to share the message. That's why Daniel at first was dismayed and alarmed. Now the question comes up. Why was God working in this way in the king's life? Seven years and yet the kingdom wasn't taken away. And we know, by the way, from history that the kingdom did remain and that his son stepped in and took charge during those seven years. And at the end of the seven years, he was restored. Why was God working in that way? Could it be that that was the dire thing that needed to be done to teach him humility? You see, you remember that in the king's image dream of the big image, he was pictured as the head of gold. And in chapter 3, the king made an entire image of gold to attract worship and praise to himself. God kept trying to give him this message that God was in control, but he kept focusing on Wow, I'm the head of gold? Wow, I'll have this whole image of gold then to be worshipped and to worship my rule. Daniel had warned the king to repent and change his ways. Break off your sins, he begged. Perhaps the Lord will give you forgiveness and time to serve him. After all, God had spoken to the king on two different occasions. The dream of chapter 2 and the fiery furnace of chapter 3. And it's dangerous to turn a deaf ear to God. In verse 28 to 33, you'll read about that humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar the dreamer. And it happened as Daniel said. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a whole year to consider the warning and turn from his sins But he didn't give any heed. And at the end of the year, he's walking around on top of the palace and he's talking about, oh, look at my beautiful palace, my beautiful kingdom. And while he was still speaking, he was struck down and began to behave like an animal, went out on his own into the wild and lived like an animal until his hair had grown long It's an illness known as boanthony or lycanthropy where you either act and behave like an ox or a wolf. There have been other cases of it recorded in history. Many scholars 
in fact, have even come to the point of saying that that's exactly what he needed because, as Dana Fuel writes, a man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast to learn that he's only a human being. Did you hear that? Let me repeat what she wrote. A man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast to learn that he's only a human being. And notice also, verse 28, that there's a shift to the third person. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. He was walking. He was driven. In fact, it even tells us that his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Interestingly, and from a historical viewpoint, all significant ancient cities and regimes kept impeccable records of their rulers, their trading partners, their highways they built, the cost of all government businesses. However, there is no Babylonian record of any government activity in Babylon during the seven years of 582 to 575 which corresponds to this biblical reference. Seven times will pass by you. And then with verse 34, the first person is resumed again. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. Listen to me. When God wants to humble a proud person, it doesn't matter if they're a king a monarch, a president, he can do it quickly and thoroughly. And that way in verse 34, as Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven, we begin to see the exaltation of Nebuchadnezzar. His song of praise is reminiscent of many Old Testament passages. He's restored to sanity as well as to the greatness of his kingdom, but he's learned a valuable lesson. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. But look once more with me, if you would, at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven. Maybe I'm reading too much into the text. I don't think so. But I hope so. But... Do you notice how the king refers to God? Very impersonally. The God of heaven. And, and by the way, that is another expression that is unique in the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar is the only one that uses that phrase. And I think it shows that his response falls short of true faith, which history then goes on to reveal. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar learned firsthand of God's supremacy. And it's a quality that's positively affirmed in many scriptures. 2 Chronicles 20, you rule over all the nations. Power and might are in your hand. 1 Chronicles 29, yours, O Lord, is the greatness of the power and the glory and the majesty. Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. And God's supremacy is demonstrated in His authority over the heavens and the earth. Psalm 135, the Lord does whatever pleases Him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and in all their depths. 
Joshua 10.13 God made the sun stand still. Isaiah 38.8 He caused the sun to recede 10 steps on the stairway of Ahaz. 1 Kings 17.6 He caused the ravens to bring food to Elijah. Nebuchadnezzar also learned firsthand by the folly of his own human pride. And I think his example bears witness to the teaching of the sage, the prophet Moses. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament repeatedly warns against pride. Proverbs 15, 25, The Lord tears down the proud man's house, but He keeps the widow's boundaries intact. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirits gains honor. This is a little bit longer quote, but I want you to hear it. It comes from Bill Arnold. He writes, The book of Daniel is especially relevant for every generation of believers because it confronts pride as our ultimate problem. Sin and rebellion always find root in pride and self-absorption. So salvation must involve confession, rejection of prideful self-sufficiency, and a dependence on God. All of which are so magnificently modeled by Daniel, his three companions, and later by the saints of the Most High. Humility. True humility. I've shared with you, those of you that in one way or another have studied psychology and counseling, either in approach to teaching or even in your approach to nursing, one of the things that they teach is that when you're listening to someone, the more often they use the personal pronoun in their discussion, I, me, myself, the more often they use that, the more it indicates they are struggling with the issue of pride. So let me conclude. My challenge is for us to realize that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Rodney Stortz has written, To enter God's kingdom and know His peace, you must not come as a self-sufficient man, but as a helpless child. What did Jesus say? Don't forget, don't forbid the children to come unto Me, for thus theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said that we are to become childlike. By the way, he doesn't say childish. There is a difference. We're to become childlike if we want to see the Father. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we realize that so often we struggle. I know I do. Struggle with the desires to build up ourselves when we're feeling weak. That old enemy pride. And so, Father, we ask. We ask for 
that vision of ourselves that enables us to humble ourselves, to pray to You, to seek You, realizing that You will bring us help in all situations. We pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Our hymn of commitment.